Good morning. Thank you for coming and, and joining in the class. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of coming together, of speaking about you and speaking for you. Send your spirit to this classroom, to those who are watching online, and help us that we may honor you and speak of you aright. Thank you for all you have given to us. Amen. Uh, my name is Wendell Moses. For most of you, um, probably know who I am. Um, I'm filling in for Tim Jennings, who's in South Africa, along with uh, Russell Atkins. And Russell sent an um, email this morning or a text message or something, message this morning, and said that they were being well-received, that um, they were being appreciated, but they would like to appreciate um, us to pray for them, for both for continued safety as well as um, the, his spirit on the hearts and minds of those who are listening. And so, anyway, um, all right. I first would like um, to make a um, a statement, and that this is not an apology. You know, you're never supposed to apologize at the beginning of a of a, a um, class. Um, so this is not an apology. This is a statement. I'm an orthopedic surgeon, not a psychiatrist. Okay. <laughs> This lesson could be very well, if you studied it this week, could very well go off and talk about depression and how Christians relate to depression and what you should do and everything else. And, and I'm totally out of my league in that. Okay, So I will not be talking about depression. If you came to talk about depression, I'm sorry. You can t- if you're a healthcare professional in the mental health field, then go to it. But I, I am not aware of anything about of these things. Um, I'm not a spokesman for a treatment indications or recommendations or results. Um, I do believe, as a healthcare professional, that mental health is just as much a healthcare issue as any of the other issues which we deal with. And it's an illness that has both structural, chemical, and functional effects. And... Historically, many Christians have been very averse to seeking psychiatric care. When I grew up in my culture, my subculture, now I grew up in Seventh-day Adventist, but there was even more, etc., there was almost a guilt or a reticence to recommend someone to seek psychiatric care. Um, this morning I did a Google search for Christian psychiatrist. And um, immediately it came several organizations that will refer you to a Christian psychiatrist, you know. But something happened last night, and it, may, it tempered my um, my introduction to that. And that is, I received my wife received a text message saying that her cousin or uncle, elderly in, in an individual, had fallen in, and had an injury. And so they were asking advice. What should we do? Should we try to get him to walk? Should we not get him to walk? You know, what should we do, etc. And I was giving some orthopedic advice as far as please do not walk him. You know, you may destroy something that I need to fix or my equivalent needs to fix. And um, so I was giving them advice. And then they, just, they chose a given hospital that they felt comfortable with. Now, this is a hospital that I know nothing about other than its name. And so I do not know the healthcare providers or whatever. And so they're running by names on orthopedic surgeons saying, well, what about so-and-so? At the time when I was giving my recommendation, I was not choosing that based on whether they were Christian or not. I was basing that on clinical competence. And with all due respect for 
myself being a Christian my, and one of my partners being a Christian. And I value, highly value that outlook and whatnot. Um, I think we need to choose clinical competence. You know, my parents um, would look in the directory or whatever and find out who was the Christian in the bunch and choose them irrespective of clinical competence. And I don't think they were always well served. Um, so anyway, but there are Christian competent psychiatrists and psychologists who can provide mental health care. And that's all I can say about mental health care. So anyway, all right. So um, in, the, in the quarterly, they, they first give you the text of the week. And um, Job 3, John 11. Job 3 was cursed the day. John 11 was Lazarus is asleep. Job 6, my life is miserable. Job 7, my life drags on. James 4, your life is just a puff of smoke. Job 7, why does God pay attention to me? Psalms 8, what is man? That God looks at him. And um, the memory text, you'd think, well, wait, wait a minute. How does the memory text relate to this? It's Revelation 4.11. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were given existence and life. Glory. Okay. Honor. And power. The scariest of those is power. Okay? You can give glory to an egomaniac and you will just further his pathology, but it won't harm you at all, as long as he's not around you. Okay? Honor. You can give honor to someone who doesn't deserve honor. I've heard the people talk about um, being in the military and they salute the, the, they salute the, the, the ribbons. They don't salute the guy because they know what the guy's like. You know, but you can honor. But power, to give someone power, that's scary. Right now we're in the middle of an election, and I don't want to go any farther than that, Rain, but um, it is scary to me because of the two people who we have selected to choose between in our country. And if you think we have a third choice, I think you're a little delusional, but anyway... Um, there's four choices apparently now. There's someone being a write-in candidate. You know, that's kind of cr- crazy. But anyway, um, power. Why is it reasonable? Why is God worthy of given power? Because he's the creator of everything. Well, that shows he already has power. Because he gives it in love. Okay, and that goes back to one of the basic tenets in this class, the natural law or whatever. What is the, what is the world, what is the universe based on? The, the law of love, okay? And um, somewhere in here, I, um, because I was concerned about this, I looked up the definition of love, and you'll go through a lot of definitions in Mer- Merriam-Webster before you come up with anything that has anything to do with what we talk about in this class. Okay? So if you use the word um, love as a basis of government or whatever, and you speak to someone who, if I speak to someone in my office that I think God is the, the God of love and that his law is love, I dare say they have no clue what I'm talking about. Okay? 
Because the definition of love, as given by most people, our definition in this, in this room is much different than the definition that most people go by. Okay? Um, and maybe I didn't print it out here. Um, yeah, love. Strong, a strong affection, an assurance affection, I give you my love. Warm attachment, the object of the attachment, a beloved person, or finally at the bottom of the list in Merriam-Webster is unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another. Okay? But most people stop well shy of that definition. In fact, when I first clicked on define love, it didn't give me that bottom one. It gave me the top two, and that's it. And you had to click further and keep chasing it before you could get the, the bottom definition. I like the definition God gives. Love what love is not. It's not rude. It's not selfish. It's not irritable. It's not hot-tempered. And all those things that go with it, it shows us what it's not. It shows us what it's not. And I, I challenge you this afternoon or sometime to write positives for all those nots. Okay? Because it's hard to emulate knots. And we become like what we, I'm jumping a little bit, but we become like what we observe and what we spend our time on and spend our mind on and what we worship and whatnot. And um, we, can't, we can't model after knots. Okay? Um, one time a, a friend of mine said, well, I don't do this and I don't do that and do, I don't do that and I don't do that, but neither does a sack of cement. Okay? And so I think it's important to take 1 Corinthians 13 and write out the positive attributes that would be associated with all those knots. Okay? I think 1 Corinthians 13 is beautiful and whatnot, and I like it. I, I, I think it's uh, something that we need to emulate, but I think we need to emulate it in the positive. We need to concentrate on what we can do. And the lesson quarterly on the, on the uh, Sabbath afternoon lesson, it says, as we read the story of Job, we have two distinct advantages. First, knowing how it ends, and second, knowing the background, the cosmic conflict operating behind the scenes. Did Adam know of the cosmic conflict. If you go by what Scripture says, there's very little in the Scripture talking to, about Adam's knowledge of the cosmic conflict. Okay? If you go by Mrs. White's writings, yes, angels came and instructed him and instructed about the whole, whole deal. But if you go by Scripture and Scripture alone, you don't have much about it. Okay? So, um, if he did know it, did he share it with anyone? I think he probably did. But that, that was time removed from when Job lived. And Job may have had no clue what was going on. Yes? Well, if you just look at the tree of knowledge standing there, good and evil, then obviously he must have been given some instructions more than what we're seeing in the Bible about what this tree is. Because you're not supposed to go near it, you're not supposed to talk to any snake that's in the tree you know so obviously he had some knowledge of 
there was a conflict going on, and this was keeping him safe to stay away from this. So there had to have been some knowledge he had with it. Okay. At the bottom of the page, it says, Who among us, born of human flesh in fallen world, doesn't know something of the perplexity that tragedy and suffering brings, especially when we seek to serve the Lord faithfully and do what is right in His sight? It bothered me this specially. Okay? So, do we have more perplexity because we are Christians? Is it better in this life to live the life of a Christian or not? Absolutely. Some of my well-meaning good friends professionally are having a tough time in this life because they have no clue about the cosmic realities that we are aware of. Okay? So, is there disadvantages to being a Christian in this world? Absolutely. What are the disadvantages? Being misunderstood. Yeah. You know, we speak of disadvantages, but largely they're disadvantages of cultural things that we assume or whatever, and maybe our, our, how we worship or how we spend our time and our resources and everything else, etc. But if we're truly living out God's government of love, I don't know that there are disadvantages, okay? There may appear to be disadvantages in my occupation or in my whatever, Okay, um, my daughter is getting her PhD in chemistry, and um, of all things, PCHEM. But anyway, that's a different story. Um, but I have wondered about her when she comes up to her doctoral dissertation. She, in her field, will have to defend evolutionary knowledge, etc., for her PhD. I'm sure. Okay. And so her beliefs may be a disadvantage in that arena, okay? Or it may be a challenge, but I think it's, it behooves her now to prepare, etc. I think of Daniel. What was Daniel and the three worthies schooled in? All the knowledge. All the knowledge, which, was, which they were learning to become what? We think of them as being governors, but that's not what they were taking training in. They were taking training in the foreign gods and the religious and the philosophy of Babylon. That's what they're being tested on. Yes. I'm just thinking of my own PhD exams. I think it's a tremendous advantage to be a Christian because you have a more objective view of things when you're not so emotionally invested in them. Thank you for saying that, okay? Because I have not had the privilege of, you know, defending my... It puts you on a different plane because you have that other perspective that they don't... Right. I would think that would be true, okay? But not having experienced that or whatever, I think that, you know, that's... um, Thank you for for mentioning that. Um, So, cosmically, we know how it ends, Okay? The real question is personal. How will it end for me? 
individually, we are saying, wait a minute, cosmically, I know God wins, and I can read Revelation, and God wins, and all sorts of stuff. But the real question is, how will I end? Okay? And that's where the battle is. It's not the battle on this cosmic thing. The battle is personal. You know? Will it end well for me? I mean, growing up, I grew up in a very conservative time in America, and, you know, the Cold War was going on, and the number one thing at the county fair was the bomb shelters display. You know, you go and make the tours, little bomb shelters and stuff, and go and look at all the supplies you get and everything else. You know, I remember as a child of first and second grade, living 90 miles, well, I didn't live 90 miles, but the state of Florida is 90 miles from Cuba and the Cuban Missile Crisis and everything else. And I remember um, practicing diving under my desk in case of an attack, as if that would have done anything in a nuclear attack. But um, anyway, um, I, I, it makes me think of Pompeii, you know, would somebody excavate this years later with all these little kids under their desk or whatever. But, um, you know, and then, see, you know, there was a holiday it was a teacher's holiday. I don't remember why, but it turned out it was the day that the national preparedness was supposed to happen. And so because my dad worked across the street from the school and I didn't have anything to do that day, he took me to his work, but I couldn't be with his work. So I went across the street to the school and played on the playground and overcame these jets because they were practicing signaling to the schools that there was a nuclear attack. And it was me just jumping out in the middle of the, of the um, school ground, just jumping up and down, waving to the jets and everything else all by myself, etc. And I thought, wow, that's cool. In retrospect, it's like, really? You know? But um, we know cosmically how it's going to end, but we don't know personally how it's going to end. And in that whole environment of conservative, you know, East versus West and all sorts of stuff, etc. My mom was schooled in the days of the last events and the time of Jacob's trouble. And she scared the pea whittling out of me. Okay? And you just mentioned Jacob's time of trouble and my, I breathe a little differently. Uh, my stomach is a little bit different and whatnot. And it has been a process to get over some of those fears. Because yes, it's going to be it's going to be tough for some people. But when I I went back this week and read about Jacob's time of trouble, and I won't spend that much time in the class with this, but it's trouble everywhere. Everyone is going to be in a time of trouble. It's not just Christians. Everyone's going to be in trouble. Do you have an anchor that brings you through that time of trouble? Are you so committed? We talk about sealing. Are we so committed that we will have someone to depend on? God says, I will never leave you. You know, I think we haven't spent enough time talking about that. We've talked about the other thing. We've not talked about God will never leave us. So anyway, um, I came across the thought, well, be careful lest ye fall. And so I looked up. The word careful, you know. Now, in the King James, the word careful is not really being the word, same thing that we, the, but just looking through the text of um, being careful. Luke 11.34, therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. That's what we need to be careful about. That we know him 
and it's truly light that we know, not darkness. Second Peter 3.17 Ye therefore, beloved, seeing no these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the air of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Philippians 4.6 Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Why? Because he cares for us. Um, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 in the Good News Translation is, is don't worry about anything, including Jacob's time of trouble. But in all your prayers, ask God for what you need, always asking him with a thankful heart. And God's peace, which is far beyond human understanding, will keep your hearts and minds safe in union with Christ Jesus. Or 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. But you, my friends, already know this. Be on your guard then so that you will not be led away by the errors of lawless people and fall from your safe position. We often don't emphasize that we are in a safe position. But continue to grow in grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. All right. I think we have often forgotten Romans 8 or have misread Romans 8. What does the word with mean? Together. Together? Has two main meanings. One as opposed to something. I fight with my brother. Okay? Right? Opposition. Or it could be a participant. He works with his father. Okay? Read Romans 8.23. But it is not just creation alone which groans. We who have the Spirit as the first of God's gift also groan within ourselves as we wait for God to make his children and set our whole being free. God's Holy Spirit is working with us. Okay? He's a participant with us. Romans 8, 31 through 35. If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God, who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him for us all. He gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? God himself declares them not guilty. Who then will condemn them? Not Christ Jesus, who died, rather who was raised to life, and is at the right side of God, pleading with him for us. How do you hear that with? Pleading with him. As a participant. Not as opposed, because it's already said God the Father's with us. And if Christ is with us, they're both on the same side, as a participant, not in opposition. Can... Can trouble do it? Hardship, persecution, hunger, poverty, danger, or death? You know, we've, we forget to read with. Is it, how do you see God together now? Is Christ in his holy temple pleading with the Father? What direction do you see him pleading? Which way is he standing? He's pleading with us. With the Father. Anyway. Okay, so um, my life as an orthopedic surgeon is I teach residents. 
and I'm in surgery half to half time. And um, when I was in North Carolina, I always played music in the operating room, and I I, I would I'd make the the statement that I couldn't operate without music. But I can't, when I came here, I found out that I couldn't talk to the residents with music going on. I couldn't I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't hear what they're saying. My ears don't work real well, and so I had to turn off the music. And so when you come into the operating room with Dr. Moses, it's quiet, you know, except for us yelling at each other. Um, and so this week I had a unique opportunity. One of my two residents was on vacation. The other resident was called away to do some emergency stuff with someone else. And I got to do my own surgeries by myself. And it was wonderful. And so I entered the room and said, can you find an oldies goldies radio station and turn it on so loud that anesthesia has to question whether they can hear the heartbeat? Okay. Usually at the end of a case, if someone is playing music, they'll say, turn it on some closing music. And usually what turns on is loud blaring music because you're doing something repetitive. You're not having to talk to anyone. It's all mechanical. You're just getting the wound closed. And so we call it closing music. And I wanted closing music the whole case. Well, they turned on a station on some of these electronic things where you turn on your whatever and you plug it in, whatever. I don't know how it's done. Um, anyway, they turned on a Simon and Garfunkel station. And on came a song by John Denver. And I thought of the Sabbath school lesson. It was instantly, it says, it's called I'm Sorry. Okay, and and, you, and if you're old enough to remember John Denver, you know, I'm sorry, but no. Um, you know, it's cold here in the city. It always seems that way. I've been thinking about you almost every day, thinking about the good times, thinking about the rain, thinking about how bad it feels alone again. I'm sorry for the things there are in China. I'm sorry the things aren't what they used to be. But more than anything else, I'm sorry for myself. Doesn't that sound like Job? You know? I'm sorry for myself. Now, he, he's going through a lot more than John Denver did, but anyway. Um, you know, that's the idea that we get about Job, is I'm sorry about myself. Let's turn to Job 3, 1 through 10. After this opened Job his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spake and said, Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, there is a man-child conceived. You know, he's cursed even the day. that I mean, he would, he would rather never have been born. And not conceived either. Yeah. Yeah. Just, have you ever felt that way? Sure. Yeah. There's been some times, more than a few. You know, it's like, oh man, if I just, Lord, what is this? You know, just. At the, at the bottom paragraph, the third paragraph says, The world has no meaning, as we have seen, though this answer doesn't work for the believer in God. And for Job, a faithful follower of the Lord, this answer didn't work either. But what was the answer? What was the explanation? Job didn't have one. All he had was his extreme grief and all the questions that inevitably accompanied it. Can anyone know the answer? We don't know the future. We don't know why things are happening now. There, there, it's rarely that you know why something happened. We not only don't know the future, we don't know the past or the present. Really. There's so much we don't know. We think we know the past. We only know a little part of the past. 
Yeah. I think of Elisha. Oh, Lord, open his eyes, his servant, you know. And he went out. And surrounding town were thousands of angels protecting Elisha. No, we don't, we, don't know, we don't know what's going on, you know. Only by divine vision do we know what's in this room. Sunday's lesson, fourth paragraph. Life, of course, is a gift from God. We exist only because God has created us. Do you believe that? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. In my work, I have come to the conclusion that this did not happen. God created life, but he did not create me. I don't think he created you. I don't think he created any of us in this room. Okay? He gave, he gave Adam and Eve a gift, the gift of life. Now, you may have been created yourself by an act of love, a selfish indulgence, rape or incest. I don't think... God had anything to do with those, those things, okay? Yes, act of love, yes, but, but not these other things. Your genetic makeup was determined by your inheritance. God didn't burn another one. Daily, what my job is, is to try to, to fix things mechanically and mechanistically and control things with braces and surgeries and other things to control damage that has happened in the human genome. Okay? One of my colleagues says that he's an anti-evolutionist. That um, what he does is essentially trying to counteract the, the, the um, effects of evolution. You know, and um, I don't think that we need to blame God for who we are. Okay? So... Um, you know, I, I, I think that unless we um, understand God to be the God of love who created the world perfectly and set in motion something perfect, but there has damage come. And we, we should not blame God for that damage. I don't think God gave anyone a damaged child. One of the frequent names in my office is Nevaeh. Nevaeh is heaven spelled backwards. Okay? Another name that is common in my office is a variation of the word miracle. A miracle. Some, some you know, combination of miracle. These are the most damaged child children I can imagine. And I think, no, I understand that you're living a tough life and you need to take care of this child and whatnot, but don't blame God for this miracle. For this, this child was not heaven sent. We need to do what we can to glorify God in spite of what we have been given, but not because of it. The bottom pink section on Sunday's lesson says, um, um, have you ever felt the way Job felt, Job felt here? That is, wishing you had never been born. Eventually, though, what happened? Of course, you felt better. 
How important it is for us to remember that even in the worst moments, we have the hope, the prospect of things improving. Often not in our lifetime. Okay? Not until heaven will some things improve for some people. Many of my patients and families will not have it any better until their bodies are made new in heaven. Many of the people living in devastatingly poor countries such as Haiti have little hopes of things improving. Especially, this is true after the recent hurricane. 900 people in Haiti were killed by the hurricane. Whole neighborhoods that have no homes whatsoever to live in. I see little of things improving listed in Christ's Sermon on the Mount with his description of the Beatitudes. Not until heaven. Christ said the life of the genetically blind was, was to, for the praise of God. How did he do that? John 9.3 Jesus answered, His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. He is blind so that God's power might be seen at work in him. What does that mean? How was it that he is blind so that God's power might be seen at work at him. How is that? Do you have an explanation? It's in spite of we live our lives in God's glory. Okay? So, yes, we are all damaged in some degree. We all have daily struggles to some degree. And it's when we live our life to God's glory, in spite of what we have been given by this genetically mismanaged um, inheritance. When we, when we praise God, when we live a life wholly devoted to Him, we are glorifying Him in spite of this. Okay? 2 Corinthians 12.9, But His answer was, My grace is all you need, for my power is greatest when you are weak. I am most happy then to be proud of my weaknesses in order to feel the protection of Christ's power over me. So Paul had, I don't know what his, his thorn in the flesh was. You know, people have speculated that a lot. I wonder if he stuttered or had seizures or had something else, you know, because he mentions that in his pres- in presence, he was a weak person, but in his letters, he was very powerful. And so you wonder about what happened you know, for Paul. But in our weakness, we can live powerfully for God and speak powerfully for Him. Years ago, I saw this uh, poster that says, God makes no junk or something like that. Yeah. And I've always wondered about that, you know, because t- a child who's crippled, like, like you sometimes might see, you know, you tell him, God makes no junk. Uh, first, the boy would feel better about himself, knowing that God is, you know, did not create him as being junk. But it also kind of says that God would create crippled children. Yes. I rail against that because I don't think that's God. Okay? But that's the only way that some parents can cope with, with the mechanism. Okay? And so, consequently... I do all in my power to make that child's life as good as it can be here on earth. Okay? That's my job. Couldn't you say that just because he is crippled, he is not junk? 
He's a, well, he is still well, a valuable I, human being. Yes, I, yes. I don't think he is junk. Okay, he, he's he's worth everything to me. Right. I have a painting in my office, and has a wheelchair, and a beautiful city in the future in the background, and Christ kneeling, hugging a little boy, and it's called Johnny Made Whole. I live for that day. For when I no longer will have a job. But don't blame God for these genetic mistakes. Okay? Whether they are physical that I'm taking care of, or structural, mental, or chemical, or whatever. Yes? Well, we know what God is like because wherever Jesus went, he healed. Yeah. He didn't just say, oh, isn't this wonderful that you're blind or you're crippled. You're going to glorify God better than a defective body. He never did that. Yeah. I've seen that bumper sticker or poster or whatever about God makes no junk. And, and that's all I can say is that's how some people cope. Well, and it is true that we are all valuable. <clears throat> Even the mentally disabled are valuable right. because they're human beings. Right. I think God never gives you more than you can handle. And also, you know, God's interested mostly in your character development more than, you know, physical as much. Yeah. I think that's, a, a, that's not a very... To say God doesn't give us more than we can handle always made me feel like, well, I don't want to be strong then. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's another way of thinking about that, and that is that whatever comes to us in life and we're not protected, that God will give us what we need at the time. Yeah. Which may be simply the ability to endure, like Job. It might not be happy. Okay. Um, Job. Some of you, I know, will have this text memorized about... Um, there's no temptation given to a man that you know. And it, okay, but what does it say? He will make a way of escape. Okay, make a way of escape. But then, what does it say? That we will be able to bear. be able to endure it. Okay, it's not that it's going to be taking away or whatever that we're going to be. A may awake of, of escape that we will be able to endure it. Okay? All right. Probably spent too much time on that, but that's, uh, to me that's precious. I, I, I don't think that God makes mistakes, you know. And he did not make cripples. So, anyway. All right. Monday's lesson. Um, Job 11, uh, 3, 11 through 26. I wish I had died in my mother's womb or died the moment I was born. The first paragraph says, Job lost all his children, all of them. It's hard enough to imagine the pain of losing one child. Job lost them all, and he had ten. No wonder he wished that he were dead. And again, Job had no idea of the background behind it all. Not that it would have made him feel better had he known, would it? I don't know. Did Job, did Job know any idea behind it all? Probably not. Okay? Does knowing the background help us? Yes. 
You say yes. People are nodding their head yes. Do you have any scriptural support for that? Or is it a nice idea? But doesn't it say in the Bible, Mira, that prophecy uh, is for non-believers so that they can believe and have faith in what God has uh, has said? So yeah. Knowing gives us uh, an advantage. Uh, okay. Is the advantage knowing what's going to? Is it an advantage that we have a roadmap for the future? Give us hope. Give us hope. Okay. First Thessalonians four thirteen. Our friends, we want you to know the truth about those who have died, so that you will not be sad as those who have no hope. So yes, have a different perspective does help somewhat in grief and whatnot. Um, as far as prophecy, which we've talked about. Um, why do we have prophecy? To know what's going to happen? No. To know that what kind of God we have. Okay? If you read John eight twenty eight, you know, and I encourage you if you have your Bible, um, just look up some of these texts. John eight twenty eight, um, Ezekiel thirty two fifteen. Or Ezekiel 6.13. So John 8.28 says what? John 8.28. When I'm reading these texts, if, if, if you guys find it quickly, you can, you can read it. Then said Jesus unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, men shall, then shall you know that I am He, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. So why did he tell them in advance that he was going to die? So that when they saw it happen, their belief could be confirmed. Their faith and trust in him could be made more complete. Okay? Not a single person caught on beforehand. So it wasn't so that they'd know the way. Okay? Um... You know, Luke twenty one twenty eight for encouragement. Luke twenty one thirty one for encouragement. John thirteen nineteen so that Jesus would be known as the Messiah. John fourteen twenty nine that we may believe in Him. This is all the reasons for prophecy. It's not so that we know the roadmap. On Monday's lesson, also they talked about Ecclesiastes nine five and six and John eleven eleven, and they're talking about the state of the dead. Now, as I was driving back and forth to work, usually I turn on religious stations as much as I can stand, and then I have to turn them off, um, you know. Um, but this week, I was on an AM station trying to listen to football, okay? I wanted to find out the score from the night before. And there's an a AM station that broadcasts sports all the time. And so I turned it on, and unfortunately, my car's radio didn't have a good reception, and it flipped over to the, some other neighboring AM station that was a religious station, and it was like, oh, brother, oh, brother, I keep going in the same direction, because I want to hear this, because it was talking about Adventist, okay? And how this person had gone to a Seventh-day Adventist evangelistic series, and he'd gotten disturbed by the text he'd been given about the state of the dead. And so he was calling into this program, asking their advice. And they mentioned Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6. 
and also um, Job. You know, the evangelist had used these two texts. And the guy said, well, both of those people were clinically depressed. Okay? We off, he says, we don't usually quote the clinically depressed with the maxims of life. Okay? And so I got to thinking, you know, that is a valid point. There's, there are reasons why when Christ said, pray that your flight not, be not on the Sabbath day, we use that as a, a, oh, it must be still the Sabbath. And yet everyone knows that the doors were locked on Sabbath. They couldn't get out. Okay? So, you know, people have a very, I think we have much better uses or biblical evidence for the state of the dead than Ecclesiastes 9, 5, and 6, which was written by a clinically depressed person. Okay? Or Job, who was written by a guy who was willing to die. Okay? I don't think we should use those statements. So, try not to use proof text text. Technology, but going through the idea of why do we believe in soul sleep? Okay? So, briefly, for the next couple of minutes, I'd like to run through a list of texts. Not to read them, but to talk about them. If you want to read all my texts, you can go to the, the notes for this week, and there's about 16 pages of it. Okay? But just kind of an overview. Number one, the beginning of creation of man. If you read the beginning creation of man and how it was done, how there was a body and then he breathed into a life-giving force and then he became a living, living being. Okay? If you disassemble that, you don't come up with an ever-living being. The way the kings of Judah are described as sleeping with their fathers the statements of Job and Solomon can be used, but those are clinically depressed. I'm not going to use them. Okay? In the book of Isaiah, the dead do not praise God. In Isaiah 26, 38, 41, or 57, the dead are not praising you, so don't kill me. I can't praise you if I'm dead. The benediction by the angel to Daniel at the close of his book is for reward of a faithful servant at the resurrection not a meeting of God at his death. You read um, Dan, at the, uh, the last chapter, the last few verses of Daniel. The description throughout the book of Psalms talks about the difference between praising God while you're alive or the absence of praise when you're dead. He said, you know, what David in most of the time is saying, what's good if, if I die? I can't praise you then. If he can't praise you then, that says something. All but one of Christ's statements on death describe the reward for a righteous life, for a walk with God, at the resurrection, not at death. All of them. Christ's promise of eternal life in John 3.16 tells us that without this gift, we will not live forever. We don't burn somewhere. We don't go somewhere else forever. Okay? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that who should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? We don't have everlasting life without him. 
Peter describes David as still present in his tomb with his people at that time in uh, Acts 2. When Stephen was stoned, he fell asleep. Paul's reference to the church members dying are all about falling asleep. Yes. What about Lazarus and Tabitha? Jesus awoke them. They weren't in heaven. They weren't in hell. They weren't burning or up in heaven. He wouldn't have taken them out of heaven to bring them back on this earth. Why did Christ wait four days to go see Lazarus? Why was that? Do you know? Yeah. Okay. So what happened in in the Jewish thought? The spirit hung around for three days, and so you really were clinically dead, 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 declared dead until four days. Okay. In the technology of the day, it probably was good. Paul's discussion regarding death and the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4, do not make any sense if there's immediate transport to heaven at death. You read those passages. It doesn't make any sense if we go to heaven at, at, at death. Okay? Um, in Philippians 3, Paul is looking forward to the resurrection from the dead for himself, not meeting Christ before then. In Colossians 3, 4, it's when Christ appears that we will appear with him in glory. It's after the resurrection. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul states that only God is immortal. In 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10, it's through the gospel that immortality is revealed. We do not have the ability to live forever without it. Yes? So, you're in your walk and in my walk, we're meeting people all the time that are telling us their death story. Oh, yes. They, they went to heaven. They right. saw the bright light. Right. So Met how did, their grandfather. Where does your conversation go with that? Well, I think that's great. I'm glad you had a wonderful experience. Okay? There's good scientific evidence on what happens with CO2 narcosis. Okay. Um, they have done experimental studies where they've got in, in, with altering your gases to get CO2 narcosis. And you will feel like you're flying above the room and seeing the room from a different perspective and hear voices and everything else, etc. And based on your beliefs, you'll, get, you'll see all sorts of, of visions and stuff. Okay? And so um, I don't talk to them about that because if, if, they, if they really are asking me what happened... You bet, I will tell them. But I'm, I'm not out to shoot down their, their good theories, okay? I do introduce them to the Bible and say, you know, if, if you're depending on three texts or five texts or whatever to show you that this is how it is, I, I, I don't think that it makes sense, okay? And so, yeah, there are. There's a movie coming out about this little boy that goes off to heaven and blah, 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 etc. You know, everyone in my, in my um, office, pretty much, now we have a new physician. He's, it turns out he's a Seventh-day Adventist. And so I haven't talked to him at all about religion. But um, um, everyone else in the office, I mean, people are dying and extended family members and everything else. There's always this, this well, they're in heaven and whatever. I mean, it culturally, in the newspaper yesterday, there was a, a, a discussion about a little boy who shot himself and, and killed himself at four years of age 
found a gun underneath his grandmother's bed and shot himself, etc. And there's a newspaper. And in the conversation that the mother had with this boy as he's dying in the hospital is, go ahead, but you'll, you'll, you'll see mommy crying, but don't worry about it. And it the, the whole expectation is that he's going to heaven. Okay? Well, how rude would it be for God to send you back, too? You just got to heaven and you're like, oh, now it's going to be peace and love and harmony. And now, no, back to dark earth. I try not to have arguments with people, but if, if they truly are asking me what I believe and why, you bet. I think we have abundant evidence of, of what happens at death. Um, in Hebrews 11, talks about are the martyrs, the heroes of faith. And yet, in that chapter, it's the resurrection that is the reward for the martyrs. It's not dying and going to heaven. None of them receive their reward. It will be given to them at the same time as the rest of us. Hebrews eleven thirty nine and 40. Jude 6, 14 and 15. There is a judgment and a reward at the end of earth's history. doesn't make sense to get your, your punishment or reward until after the judgment. Revelation twenty twelve and 13. Everyone is judged after the, the resurrection. You know... Um, I, I like music very much. Um, this Negro spiritual sooner will be done with the coming of the world, uh, coming of the Lord, whatever. Troubles of the world. Troubles of the world. Yeah, right. No more weeping and wailing. Why? Because I'm going to live with God. When that will occur, I'm not here to argue with someone, but you know it doesn't make sense with the. If you just read the scriptures out as a narrative and try to figure out what it looks like they believed, it doesn't make sense for their arguments about the state of the dead from even Paul's statements. Yes? The problem with believing that you go somewhere and you're still conscious is that opens the way for spirit manifestations, which are the foundation of almost all world religions and are very prominent in people's thinking in the United States, too. Yeah, that's a problem, and I, I see the future as being taking advantage of that worldwide belief. I don't think that's the only problem. That we, 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 we'll move on, but um, yeah, that is, a, that is a challenge. I'll finish with Tuesday's lesson, Other People's Pain. Third paragraph, we don't suffer in groups. We don't suffer anyone's pain but our own. We know only our own pain, only our own suffering. And then the last sentence of the paragraph said, every fallen being who has ever lived can only know his or her own pain and no more. I was like, what? Dwell more on this idea, humans in, at the bottom highlighted area, dwell more on this idea that human suffering is limited to each individual. How does this help you, if it does, to look at the troubling issue of human suffering in a somewhat different light? I have no clue. You know, if is mentioned in here about the string theory or whatever of human interaction, that's a little too bizarre for me to comprehend or whatever. How do we share another's grief? How do we bear another's burden? Um, and the teacher's comments on page 65, it says, How can I maintain empathy in the face of nonstop news images that document human suffering around the world? I think that's the issue. We can get so 
so inundated. In the medical field, you have to develop a wall. Okay? That wall should not be brick thick that you cannot see someone else's suffering. Okay? You have to maintain a human touch, but you cannot get too involved. So you have to develop a wall, but I think you have to fight against the natural tendency to be desensitized to pain and to suffering and to life. Love does mean caring for another in their best interest. So we have to guard against complete loss of sympathy. When we are inundated by the worldly media and whatnot, we become desensitized. We are becoming changed, and it behooves us to spend time daily with God and with His Word and in prayer talking to Him. It's a natural law that we become like what we pay attention to. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the privilege of coming before You to knowing that you are with us, that you have promised your spirit in our lives to give us strength to live our lives, to show to those around us what you are like. Be with Tim and those that are with him in South Africa. Be with those around the world who are searching after you, our loved ones who do not know you. May we honor you. May we be good representatives and good spokesmen for you. May we live our lives so that others may see you. Amen.